So today I want to invite you to open up, if you have a copy of God's Word, we're going to go to the Psalms. We kicked off this series, uh, Summer in the Psalms, and for the next several weeks, uh, we're going to be just taking stops in different Psalms throughout the Scriptures. And this morning we're going to make our way to Psalm 19. So if you would like to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 19, we're going to just kind of park ourselves there. And uh, it's going to be a really great sermon series this morning. I think the worship has just set us up uh, to see God and the majesty of who he is and what that means for us. But I just kind of want to ask you a question. I kind of have this habit, and I want to see if anybody else does. Uh, a lot of times you do. So it helps me. It gives, brings me great comfort knowing that some of the things that I think are weird about me are actually weird about you too. And I'm not the only one that feels weird. So... Um, I, I'm kind of one of those people, and maybe you're not one of these people, but I constantly have like a song or just a little snippet from a song or uh, something playing through my head. Does anybody have that? Like whenever you go to lay down at night, it, it just plagues you. Um, whenever you're like just, just doing some mundane thing, it, it starts to creep out and maybe it goes from your head and like out. Side. I have members of my family. I'm not going to incriminate anybody, but members of my family are like that. Um, we, we are, I think it's just something that my whole family kind of has going on in their lives, but uh, I'm glad to know that some of you are that way. Um, yeah, there's these things like I think the cultural phenomena for them with the advent of pop music is, is an earworm, right? Like you hear a song and it's just so catchy. And that's kind of like the goal of pop music actually is to torture you for the rest of your life, so that when it's, when it's midnight and you're trying to go to sleep, never going to give you up, so it starts playing in your head, right? <laughs> that's, the only, that's the only reason that song was written. It was to, to torture people, to, to, to make them sleep deprived, right? No, that, that, that's kind of one of those things that happens, and you're welcome for that for the rest of the day. It's going to be there. It is. And so that, that's kind of that's who I am. And I think this, this is not just a, a phenomenon that happens with music, though. Maybe you're one of those people that, that replays things in your head in other arenas of life as well, right? Like you've got these other, um, like, refrains that happen in your life. Sometimes they, they center around, for me, I've had some struggles with, with the refrains that go around that telling me that I can't do things, right? Or, or I, there's, there's no opportunity here for that thing because you're not good enough, right? Or you're not smart enough, or you're not thin enough to wear those pants, Matt. You can't pull that off, right? Like, you, you're not this or that. Like, you've got that. Maybe you've got a voice of a teacher from your past that, that, that rings in your head, right? You'll never be good at math because of that one seventh grade math teacher that blamed you for your learning rather than their ability to teach you. I'm not trying to say anything about teachers, but some teachers are better at teaching than others, and some students are better at learning than others, and there's a lot of factors that go in to our ability to comprehend algebraic equations. And so you might have that. Maybe it's, it could be a childhood bully. It could be the voice of a parent, a grandparent. But there's likely in your life somewhere there's these refrains that you continue to play. You know what a refrain is? It's kind of an old school music term. The refrain is the part of the song that gets repeated. We would often call that a chorus. A chorus, right? The refrain is the thing that you always you return back to. And in the old church where we had hymnals and stuff, anybody come from that background? You used to hold the hymnal, right? And when they put screens in the church, people revolted, right? There was rioting in the streets because of screens in the church, right? But when, they, when, when you had the, the, the hymnal, you knew that the verses were at the top. And the reason you knew that the verses were at the top was because they had numbers next to them. 
And when you got down to the bottom, if it had a, a refrain or a chorus, the chorus was on its own at the bottom. And you knew once I read this one, I go down to the bottom, and then I return back. And I'm going to come back down here and repeat this part and go back. So that's the refrain. And the refrain is this thing that's meant to be repeated. It's meant to dig in. It's kind of like the pop culture hook. Like it's the thing that, that is meant to stick in you. The problem is, as we go through life, we pick up refrains from people and places that get in there and they get stuck. You ever gone fishing and caught something other than a fish? That's, a, that's what I catch when I go fishing. Like, if you want to go fishing for junk, you take Matt Bruns with you. You want to go fishing for fish, you take somebody else. If you want to go catch, like, old boots and tires, like, cartoon-style stuff, I, I got it. I'm, I'm your guy. Because I find that stuff when I go fishing. And some of us have hooked that. Like, like that's what we've hooked. We've hooked garbage in, in these refrains that play in our minds constantly. And we're constantly playing garbage refrains through our heads. And so the never-ceasing, like, refrains that are going on in our minds, the music that plays, whether it's carnival music or pop music, it, it, it eats away at us, though. It starts to shape us. And, and King David, last week we talked about the Psalms, how King David had written 75 of these Psalms, like a prolific Psalm writer. And I imagine there were probably more that he wrote that just weren't in, like, they just weren't included in the, the book of Psalms. And, and he was constantly singing songs to the Lord, singing about his joys, singing singing about his failures, singing about the love of God, singing about the restoration of God, the redemption of God, all of these things, constantly singing these things. And if you, if you look and study at the life of David, you see like David had a lot of problems. David had a lot going on. David was a bad father. If you look, if you judge a father by their children, David was terrible. He had a kid who wanted to murder him. Any of your kids want to murder you? that you know of? <laughs> right? I'm, I don't think mine do. I'm pretty confident in that. Like, if it's a question for you, you probably want to check your parenting. Like, just going to throw that out there. Like, if you're, if you're like, well, I'm not really sure. You know, the one I just don't really trust. You know, I just sleep with one eye open. But for David, Absalom, his son, like, he, as soon as David became king, it was like, Absalom was like, no, nah, that's mine. I want that. And just hunted after David. Well, David spent prior to becoming king, hunted by King Saul. Someone that he looked up to, someone that, that he worked for and he did an amazing thing for. He killed, the David, he killed the giant Goliath for King Saul, fought battles for him, played the harp for Saul when he was tormented by an evil spirit, like helped Saul and Saul just turned against him. So David, and he goes through his life, makes a series of bad decisions. Like I know we hold David up, but David was not flawless at, by any means. And so David, he, out of these things that happened to him because of his flaws, and I don't know, I think maybe we can identify with that. I'm not flawless. Out of his flaws, David writes these psalms. And Psalm 19 is just this beautiful psalm, this beautiful reminder for us that, that of, of what the power of God and who God is can do for us and what God wants to do for us. So I want to walk through Psalm 19 real quick. And I want us to see it, and I want us to see how, how God reveals himself to us. And this is how David kind of interpreted God's um, re revelation 
and then how that revelation kind of kicks off a process for us that is, can be helpful to us and, and builds us up as we strive to follow Jesus. Psalm 19 verse 1 says this, The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display His craftsmanship. Day after day they continue to speak. Night after night they make Him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. God has made a home in the heavens for the sun. It bursts forth like a radiant bridegroom after his wedding. It rejoices like a great athlete eager to run the race. The sun rises at one end of the heavens and follows its course to the other end. Nothing can hide from its heat. David is expressing here, and I should have shared this with you first, so forgive me tech people, but God has revealed himself to us through his work in creation. That's what David is, is, is sharing with us here in the beginning of the psalm. He says, look, you can look at creation and you can see the handiwork of a creator. The, all creation, that Paul wrote in Romans, all creation testifies that there is a creator so that we are without excuse. Meaning that it, because there is a creation, because there are people who were created, because there are animals and plants and insects and, 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 and waters and, and, and land and the sky and, and the space and all these things, because all of that exists, we are on the hook. We are, we are accountable to seeing and understanding that there is a creator. That there is a creator. Like, like we at least have a clue that there is something for us to look for. Now, I'm not saying that you can gather and understand who that creator is just by creation. That's not what is being said here. You don't know who the creator is, but you know that there is a creator. And that's important. Because here's, here's what happens. God reveals himself, reveals that he exists, reveals that he's there simply by our lived, created experience. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. It says this, they, that they, they speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard, yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. Meaning this, you never, you never hear the voice. And even though creation doesn't have a voice like we have a voice, it still speaks. It still speaks. It talks about the sun, how he's made a home for the sun in the heavens, and it bursts forth like a radiant bridegroom after his wedding and rejoices like a great athlete eager to run the race. And he says that nothing can hide from its heat. I love that. When you think about it, like if, if there was something on the earth that is hidden from the sun's heat, it freezes up and it dies. Like there's no life without the sun's heat. And that's what, that's what he's saying here, is that like the sun's heat, it's inescapable. The testimony of creation to its creator is inescapable. You cannot, you cannot avoid that there is a creator of the universe. And I know this, this feels like I'm jumping into kind of that like scientific debate about evolution and things like that, but this isn't really a, it's not even like a science thing, right? Because here's what we have to, have to say. I had a conversation with someone this week about this. And, and they made a great point of, of we have to see that if, if science is about creation, like it's, it's God's truth. Like all truth is God's truth. And we have to recognize that science is designed and then our understanding of creation, that's what science is, is our understanding of how things work, is that that is owned by the one who created all of those things. And so we have to bring those things together. 
We have to somehow figure out how to reconcile all of that together, our understanding with the truth that is God's. And so that, that, that's where this, this truth is there, that God has revealed himself in his work in creation. And so we all can see that there is a creator simply by the fact that we have been and we exist in a world that exists. And lo- even logically, if there's something, it had to come from something or someone. And we were created, the term ex nihilo, we were created out of nothing, that God spoke things into existence and then used that and made us and crafted us into his image. And this is just beautiful. So, so beginning there, God, God's revealed himself through his work in creation. David continues on, and he helps us to see that God has revealed himself to us through his word in the scriptures. That he has revealed himself to us through his word in the scriptures. Verse 7 picks up and says this, The instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for living. Reverence for the Lord is pure, lasting forever. The laws of the Lord are true. Each one is fair. They are more desirable than gold, even the finest gold. They are sweeter than honey, even honey dripping from the comb. They are a warning to your servant, a great reward for those who obey them. You see how God is revealing himself through his word, how David understands this. And you got to remember, like David didn't have this. He didn't have leather bound or, or um, faux leather bound Bibles, right? He didn't have paper to, to pick up and take. What he's saying is the laws of the Lord, the things that he understood. At this point, he would have had maybe some of the historical books, you know, he definitely had the Torah, the first five books of the scriptures, and probably the beginnings of what are first and second Kings and Chronicles and first and second Samuel. Like he lived parts of those books, like they're being written. So, so he's not talking about the Bible. He's talking about the instruction of God. He's talking about the, 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 the commands of God. And we think of commands and we automatically think like, if I don't do these things, I'm in trouble. Because we have this, we have this difficult understanding of how words work. Like, like God, is, God is not sitting there and he's saying these things and then keeping a tally of every Israelite's behavior. Like what a boring job for God to have, to have to make sure that you keep in line. Like that's not what God, that's not why God gave the law. Why God gave the law, and he says this in Leviticus, he says, I, I gave you the law because I want to be your God and I want you to be my people and one day I want to live with you forever in the place that I promised for you. That's what I want. I want you to be my people and I want to dwell where you are and I want us to be together. And that's what he says in Leviticus. Did you know that? Because you probably know all the rules that are in Leviticus. You probably don't know all the rules that are in Leviticus. You probably know a couple of the rules that are in Leviticus. You probably know that you shouldn't eat shrimp because somebody brought that up to you, right? Every time you eat shellfish, you don't eat bottom feeders. That's gross. That's basically why God says don't eat bottom feeders because they're gross. What do bottom feeders eat? Stuff from the bottom, right? Not the good stuff. He says you don't, you don't eat pigs, right? We're not supposed to eat pork. You're not supposed to have bacon. And every time you eat a bacon cheeseburger or, or ribs or pulled pork or whatever, you know, you're breaking God's law. And so, so somebody's tried to throw those rules back at you. And what God is really doing is he's setting a people aside for himself. 
He's setting up a people aside from himself. And what he's doing is he's changing the way that they live so that the nations would see that there is a God and he can be known. Because in creation, we don't know who God is. We know that he created. We know that he exists, but we don't know him yet personally. But in the law, what he's done is he said, look, here's a way to begin to get to know me. These are the things that I like. I like people who don't eat ribs. Right? I, I like people. You know, I, I'm looking for a people who are willing and able and desire to be with me. That's what he's doing. And so in his law, he's revealed that. He's revealed that, and that's what Romans chapter 3 says. Romans chapter 3 says the law was never able to save us, but makes us aware of what sin is. That meaning that when you read the law, you see, oh, this is what, this is what God likes and this is what God does not like. This is, this is what makes me a person who can be in relationship with God, and this is what keeps me from relationship with God. That's what the law is intended to do. The problem with the law is, is that it was never intended to actually save you. It was never intended to be a thing that you could follow and have relationship with God. That's what the sacrificial system brings in. The sacrificial system just bring, makes it possible for there to be a people who can hear and be near the presence of God. Because otherwise, we'd all be eradicated. Like if God moves to earth and there's not a place for him to be that has been prepared for him, everybody gets obliterated because the glory of God destroys sin. That's what happens. Anytime somebody enters into God's presence unworthy, they are destroyed, obliterated, disintegrated, gone. And God knows this. And through his law, he's beginning the process of revealing who he is. So we get to know God through his word in the scriptures. He's revealed himself that way. But here's the beautiful thing. And at the time of David, like David, David's not aware of this, but God has revealed himself most clearly, most clearly through his son, Jesus Christ. That God has revealed who he is through his son, Jesus Christ. And how do we know this? Jesus told us himself this is what he came to do. In John chapter 14, it's the end of Jesus' life. If you have a copy of God's Word, you can go there. If not, I'm, I'm going to read it. I'm going to kind of paraphrase and walk through it a little bit. i got, I got to get back to 19, though. So, um, John chapter 14. Jesus is with the disciples. And, and it's, the end, it's like the end of Jesus' life. He knows it's coming. They've had the Last Supper. They've just been in the upper room. It's Passover. There's all these things going on. And they're making their way from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane to go and pray. And, and eventually Jesus is going to be, be arrested in just a few hours. And as they're making their way, he's, he's just teaching them. Like Jesus just kind of unloads as much as he can into the disciples. He's downloading everything he can get into the disciples before this time comes for his arrest. And a lot of it is just reassurance. A lot of it is just, hey, hey, like, stay with me, guys. Like, you're, you, you are here for a purpose. I am here for a purpose. Like, God's got us. Like, please just know, like, bad stuff's coming, but take heart. And he even says this, in this world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Like, he's giving them this encouragement. In, cha in chapter 14, you know this section of Scripture. You just don't know all of it, I think, as clearly as, as you just, you really ought to. 
John chapter 14, he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. There's more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? Now, you, we like that scripture because we like to hear that Jesus is going to prepare a place for us. But in, 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 in years past, I think we've all been sold on this idea that Jesus is preparing a mansion for each of us. And we all get our little house in heaven, and, and, and we all get to live on the same street as Jesus. And isn't that great? But we have our own place in heaven. And the truth of the matter is, that is not true at all. It's not true at all. Like, people back then didn't have houses like that. Um, it, it, earlier in the scriptures, J Jesus is in somebody else's house, and the houses are like four, five, six hundred square foot. And like, Seven people live in there, 12 people live in there, and they're animals too, and they do all the cooking and the cleaning and the sleeping and all that stuff in this one room. And at one point, Jesus is crammed into one of these rooms, and he's teaching people, and, and, he's, and he's spending time with them, and his family comes down from Nazareth, and they're like, Jesus, he's kind of lost his mind. Let's get him and take him back home and get him to quiet down and like, stop embarrassing us. And so they come for Jesus, and they want to take him back home. And Jesus looks around the room. When they come, they're, they're outside of the house. And in this house crammed full of people, they start to say, well, Jesus, your mom and brothers are outside. And Jesus looks around and he says, well, my mother and my brothers are right here. And everybody hears that and they're like, well, Jesus didn't love his mom. And it's like, no, 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 that's not it. What Jesus is saying is like the people that he came for are there in that room. They're crammed in, right? And they're, everybody's trying to get a piece of Jesus. But what Jesus is saying here is he's, re, he's turning that upside down. He's saying, look, look in my father's house, it's not five or 600 square foot. There's a room for you. And I'm going to get that room ready for you. I'm going to prepare a room for each and every person who belongs to my father. And they're all going to live in his house. You don't get your own house. You get roommates. But God's planning for you as a roommate. He, he's he's going to receive you into his house. And this is what Jesus is doing right now. So as Jesus is sharing this, so everything is ready, I will come and I will get you so that you will always be with me where I am and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas speaks up and he says, no, we don't, Lord. We don't know. We have no idea where you're going. So how can we know the way? And in verse six, this is where he picks up and you know this verse. You know this verse and Jesus says, look, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Well, I don't know the way to that place, Jesus. Yes, you do. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. How do we know the Father? His Son. In creation, God has revealed that he is the creator. And we know that there is a creator God. We're trying to find him. Through, his, through the word... We can get to know who this God is, what he's like, the things he likes, the things he doesn't like, what his plan is. We can begin to see glimpses of that. But we don't know God until we know Jesus. If you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Have you ever, have you ever said that? You have. Don't even act like you haven't. You've said it. You've, you've, there's been a point in your life where you're like, God, if you would just do this one little thing for me, I will serve you forever. I will go to the, to the jungles of the Amazon, and I will, right? If I, I will raise my kids to love you and serve you if you would just help them to obey me right now and not embarrass me at this function, right? 
You've prayed prayers like this. And, and Philip is, is basically in that same vein. He's like, look, look, just show us the Father, Jesus. That'll be enough. That'll be enough if you'll just do that one thing. And he's like, Philip, I just told you. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Verse 9, Jesus says, have I been with you all this time, Philip? And you, yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does this work through me. Just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe because of the work you have seen me do. God reveals himself to us through his Son, Jesus Christ. If you're wondering who God is, what, he, what he's like, what it's like to know him, it's Jesus. And Jesus said this explicitly. And so the psalmist is writing, David is writing, God has revealed himself in creation, God has revealed himself through his word, and we have the benefit of living in a time after David where God has revealed himself most clearly through his son, Jesus Christ. And the psalmist, if you go back to Psalm 19, he says this to end his psalm, starting in verse 12. How can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? Here's what Revelation starts to do for us. How can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? Cleanse me from these hidden faults. Keep your servant from deliberate sins and don't let them control me. Then I will be free of guilt and innocent of great sin. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. God's revelation leads me to repentance that brings me redemption. God's revelation is meant to bring us to repentance. David observes in creation and in the word his need for a redeemer. But he knows that he can find his redemption in this God that he's writing about. And we have the benefit of knowing that through Jesus, this is the very reason Jesus came, so that we might know what? The way to the Father. And what is the way to the Father? It's Jesus himself. And so the, the, the prayer of the psalmist here to say, uh, how can I know the sins lurking in my heart? Like, like, we don't even know like the stuff that's in there that one day might get out. And so his prayer is to be guarded from that and cleansed from that. We, we know some of the things that we do deliberately, and his prayer here is don't let them control me, because then I will be free of guilt and innocent of these great sin. But may the words of my mouth, here's his prayer, and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And the reason that this is important is, important is because we have, and we, we've already admitted today together in the, in the presence of all these witnesses, that we have all of these inputs that are going into our minds. And we have all these things that play on repeat in our minds about who we are and what we do and all of this stuff, these negative things that keep going in and eating away at knowing God. Every time that we repeat to ourselves how much of a failure we are, it is undoing the revelation work that God has done in us. Every time 
that we repeat to ourselves how we'll never be good enough, smart enough. We're not bold enough to share Jesus with people. We're not this, we're not that. When we let other people define us, all it does is it erodes at the work that God has done in us through repentance. And repentance is the pathway back to that. Like, it's not just like changing your mind. It's repenting of these things. It's recognizing how this happens. And so I have this really clever phrase that I worked really hard on all last week to share with you today. What's repeated inwardly gets reflected outwardly. So replace your refrain with the songs of the redeemed. What you say inside all the time, that stuff starts to get out. How do I know this? Because it's, that's, my, that's my story. I tell myself the worst things about myself. And then it comes out. Not just in the words I speak to other people, but in the actions that I live out and in the way I go about doing the things that God has called me to do. Anytime I step out in fear to follow God, I'm not following God. Because God is not a God of fear. God has not given me a spirit of fear. He's given me a spirit of what? Power and love and a sound mind. But when my mind is playing on repeat, never going to be good enough, right? Like never going to be strong enough. Like that song, he's playing that in my head. All it's doing is just breaking me down. It's just destroying the, the thing that God has built. And, and Christians, like, we've got to do a better job of fighting against that. We've got to allow repentance to do its work, repenting of, God, these negative things that I keep thinking that aren't true about me. They're not what your word says. They're not what creation shows me. They're not who Jesus is. And I'm not taking on the life that Jesus promises me. John chapter 10, John, Jesus says, look, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have life abundantly. Thank you for the assist. <laughs> life and life abundantly. So let me ask you this. Is your life following Jesus abundant life? Because are you really following Jesus is the first question. And second, are you, are you following him out of all of the negative things about what you aren't and where you're lacking or are you walking in the truth of who you are and who he says you are? See, my redemption means these things. These, just, these are just four things. It means that I am made holy and renewed by my Redeemer. Just like David prayed, I am made holy. He says, when, I, when, when my servant, when I'm kept from those deliberate sins, he says, look, they won't control me. Then I'll be free of guilt and innocent of great sin. I'm made holy. But more than that, I'm, I'm redeemed. That's a relationship I begin to have with God because he becomes my redeemer. I'm able to rest on my rock. My redemption means I'm able to rest on my rock. Do you believe that God is your rock? Another place in the scriptures where Jesus is talking about the power of words, he's, he's comparing it to, a fr to a, the fruit of a tree. And he says, look, the, the, tree of a, of, the fruit of this tree is produced in a certain way. But here's the thing. Um, you can know me and you produce this fruit. And if you're producing this fruit and you obey my commands and you follow my teaching, then it's like you're building your house on rock rather than sand. 
And it's not just about the storms of life that come along and try to knock your house down. It's about what, what's the foundation. Do you see God as your rock? David confesses that the Lord, Yahweh, is his rock. So that when everything around him is shaking, he has a firm foundation to rest on. Next, my redemption means I'm in a relationship, a real relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Like, do you see God as your Father who loves you, who believes in you, who, like in Leviticus and also what promises in Revelation, wants to live with you, who has a house that has many rooms where his son is preparing a place to bring you to. Do you believe that? Do you see God in that way? Because if you don't, you need to repent of that and see God for who he has revealed himself to be, not who we have constructed for him to be, not what our culture says that he is, not who your mom said he is, or your dad said he is, or your old Sunday school teacher said he is, but who he has revealed himself to be through creation, through his word, and ultimately through his son, Jesus Christ. Finally, my redemption means I have the responsibility of reproducing this in the lives of others. You see, this is where the psalmist doesn't go far enough. But in the life of the believer, our job is not just to possess this, but to, to, to send it out, to, to repeat this refrain so that people hear it in our lives and in our words and in the ways in which we go about living so that they will then pick up the tune themselves and sing the songs of the redeemed. And inside, they will be led to repentance and then they'll have a relationship with God. And that relationship with God will lead them to reproduce it in the lives of other people. This is what you are destined for. This is who God says you are. Jesus extended the invitation to disciples. He said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me and I will help you bring other people into the kingdom. Bring other people into my father's house. I will make you this. That's what Jesus has called you to. And to not believe these things about us is sin. That's what sin does. Sin's not just the deliberate things, as, as, as David talks about. It's not just the deliberate things we go about doing that go against God and breaking the rules. It's not just when you lie, right? It's not just when you look at things you shouldn't look at. It's, it's not just that. Sin is this thing that wants to control you. It wants to weigh you down. It wants to keep you under its grip. And the Father has freed you from that grip in Jesus and the way to know him and to know that is through his son, Jesus. And, and the only, the, the beginning of it is repentance. It's repentance. It's the saying, God, I, I've lived this way, and I don't want to live this way anymore. I, I've held on to wrong beliefs. Help me to let go of them. I've, I've, I've created a God after an image of, of somebody or, or myself or, or words from other people. And I've believed things about you that were actually from other people and not from, from, from your word. And certainly not in step with who your son is. And today's the day where we, we get to walk away from that mess. We get to turn off the soundtracks in our lives that are just repeating over and over and over again and telling us what we are not. That's what the enemy wants you to believe. 
That's what your sin wants you to believe. Your sin wants you to believe that you're not good enough or holy enough to share that Jesus has changed your life with another person. It's the biggest lie you've bought into in your life. Because what, what, what God has done cannot, cannot be undone. That you can't tarnish the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You can't do that. It's not yours to tarnish. It's his. When, when, when you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, what you are saying is, I don't need my own righteousness anymore because I have the righteousness of Jesus. And I take that, that it is imputed to you. It is taken from Jesus and given to you so that you can be, as Paul said, a new creation. In Ephesians, it says that you are God's masterpiece created in him for good works. There's all of these truths that God has said about us. And we walk in the lies that other people are saying to us, that other things are saying to us, that our culture is telling to us, that people, well-intentioned people inside of the church institution have said and done to us. And we need to, we need to be free of that. In order to accomplish God dwelling with us, we have to be free of that. Because you are his church, we are the house of the Lord. And when you come together, there should be joy in the house of the Lord. If you're coming with anything but joy, you're believing lies that are keeping you from seeing God for who he is. They're keeping you from seeing the way, the truth, and the life that is Jesus Christ. And you need to repent of that. Repentance is this. Repentance is saying, God, this is not good. I let it go, and I want what is good from you. And it's, it's turning. It's saying, I don't want this. I don't want what sin tells me. I don't want the lies that my mom told me. I don't want the lies that my dad told me. I don't want the abuse that I received or the, the things that, that in my past that hold me back. I don't want them anymore. I want the truth of your word. And you've got to start walking in that. I've got a tool that I want to help you with this. So we've been putting together these discipleship guides. And, and they're, they're, I think they're pretty great. If I do say so myself, I think we've done a pretty good job of that. There's a reading plan in there, some questions to think on. But this week, um, I... I'm giving you a tool that I'm using myself. So I found from, from Pastor Craig Rochelle at Life Church in Oklahoma. It's a big church. They got lots of places or whatever. He's a very wise pastor, very earnest pastor. And he's put together this list of, he calls it words to live by. And it's got to be like 200 phrases from the scriptures about who we are according to God's word. So we've put together in that discipleship guide, and the discipleship guide is like seven pages this week because of this. For you to be able to take those phrases, I've put them in a note on my phone so I can read them whenever, and begin undoing some of the, the negative stuff, the lies that you believe, and begin replacing it with what God says about you, who God says you are, the child of God that you are, the power that you have because of the Holy Spirit who lives within you. The, the type of parent that you can be. There's, there's lines for, for men, there's lines for women, there's lines for parents, there's lines for shame if you're dealing with shame, there's lines for depression and anxiety if you're dealing with that. Like, I'm not saying it's the solution to all your problems, but what I'm saying is start seeing those things and seeing yourself through the truth of his word rather than the lies that have come in through the world. You need to get a copy of that. 
It's available in our app and on our website with a link. There's a PDF version of it. If you're not a person who likes this, I don't know how many print copies there are, but we do have print copies at the Hub. You can stop by and grab you a print copy as well if you're just not tech savvy. We've got those for you. But this is so important because we've got to walk in this reality and, and recognizing that what's repeated inwardly gets reflected outwardly. So, so when we're out in the world and we're, we're there to represent Jesus, what's the stuff that we're putting out there that's supposed to represent Jesus? And I'm just going to tell you, if I were, if I were looking around in, the, in, the, in our culture, we're putting out a lot of bad press for Jesus. We're putting out a lot of negativity. We're putting out a lot of lies about Jesus. It's time to undo that stuff and walk in who we are. So what's repeated gets reflected outwardly. So replace your refrain with the songs of the redeemed. That begins with repentance. It begins with a relationship with Jesus. If you're here this morning and you've never, you don't know what a relationship with Jesus is like, you'd like to talk with somebody about that. Like I said, I'm available at the Hub. I would love to speak with you. One of our pastors would be more than happy to speak with you as well. We want to make sure that you have what you need to find and follow Jesus because he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life that we so desperately seek and need. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for it, God, thousands of years ago as you were writing through David the psalmist that, God, the truth of your revelation stands firm. That, God, you have shown who you are in creation, that you have created all things and all things give you glory, that it never ceases to testify to the reality that there is a God who has made us and has made all things. But I also thank you, God, for your word that, that is just a testimony of, of what you want and what you desire for us, God, the type of God that you are, the character that you have, and the people that you're, you're trying to, God, just to, to live in relationship with. But I thank you most of all for Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. I thank you that we can know you because of Jesus, because he lived that sinless life for us, showing us what life following God is like, but he also died for us so that we might be able to take on his life, so that we might be able to have his righteousness and be able to live in the power of God rather than under the power of sin. I pray today, God, for those in this room that may not know Jesus, they may not have a relationship with you, they don't see you as, a, as our father, they don't see the brotherhood that we share with your son and don't see the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. I pray that they would be eyes opened to that today. I pray, God, that you would encourage each and every believer in this room to know that they are greater than the sum of the negative things that they think about themselves, that the truth of your word is what defines us. The truth of who Jesus is is what defines us. And you have called us into the image of your son. You are making us like Jesus. So sin has no power here. And I pray, God, that as we make that realization, that it would have impact in our world, that it would have impact in our town here in Bluffton, that it would have impact as we move out into the, the surrounding regions like Okatee and Hardyville and Hilton Head, God, that it would, it would have impact in those places. And God, it would have impact all the way to the ends of the earth, to the people that we send out to represent Jesus well, because we know that we are made in the image and are being made in the image of our Savior. And we walk in him. Thank you, Lord, for your grace, your mercy, and the forgiveness we can have through Jesus. We praise you for it. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Would you stand and worship Jesus this morning?